What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase disciples of Jesus? For many of us, we hear the phrase disciples of Jesus and our mind immediately goes to the twelve that were later called apostles. And while the apostles certainly were disciples of Jesus, they were not the only disciples Jesus had. Jesus had many disciples during the time that he walked the earth. But not only did Jesus have many disciples, Jesus does have many disciples still. Every born-again Christian is a disciple of Jesus. If you were to go home and you were to decide to do a word study in your Bible, whether through the Internet or through a Bible program, and you were to search out how many times is the word Christian used in the, New Te- in the Bible, in the New Testament, and how many times is the word disciple or disciples used, you'll find the word disciple or disciples is used far more often than Christians. As far as God's word is concerned, disciple, believer, Christian, they're all used interchangeably to refer to the same group of people. It would be like me talking about Kelly, my wife, the mother of my children. That's not three people. That's just one person going by three different names or titles. It's really the same with Christian, believer, and disciple. Now, the reason I want to emphasize this is because many people in our day want to classify themselves as Christians, but not as disciples of Jesus. And the way I've heard it explained is something like this. A Christian is someone who has believed on Jesus and is saved. But a disciple of Jesus, that's someone who is a Christian, but they are really, really devoted to Jesus. Right. And so it, it the, the way it's explained, it pictures two categories. There are level one who are saved and going to heaven, but they're not really committed to Jesus. And then there are those who level up and become disciples of Jesus. And they're not only saved and going to heaven, but now they're devoted to Jesus. This idea of there being a different category is not found anywhere in God's word. When you read the the teachings of Jesus from the Gospels, you find he would not have understood this kind of a distinction. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not also a disciple of Jesus. To be one, you must be the other. And the goal of being a disciple is to be like Jesus. Jesus, Jesus said, is enough for a student, for a disciple to become like their teacher, their master. This is the goal. But becoming like Jesus requires change in every aspect of our lives. That there is no part of us that is naturally like Jesus. So to become like Jesus, our our values have to change. Our priorities have to change. Our attitudes have to change. Our actions have to change. Our reaction to stressors have to change. Our morality has to change. Our preferences have to change. The way we we use our our money and our time has to change. Our, Our hopes have to change. Our dreams have to change. Our plans have to change. Everything 
everything in our life has to change for us to become like Jesus. In the end, there is no area of our lives that is left unchanged and are seeking to become like Jesus. Now, in the Gospels, discipleship was accomplished by physically following Jesus around. They watched what he did and then they imitated him to the best of their abilities. Now, we can't do that. Jesus has risen and he has ascended into heaven. So how do we go about imitating him in this way so that we can be like him? Well, the way we do it is we read his word and we emulate the example that he has set for us. For Jesus has shown us how to act and how to react. He has shown us what's valuable and what should be priorities, how how to treat people and how what kind of relationships we have, we ought to have. Jesus has shown us what it means to live for the Lord our God. He has shown us all of these things. So today we're going to study a passage of scripture with the intention of learning from Jesus how to be a disciple of Jesus. If you haven't already open God's word to Mark 9, we're going to start in verse 36. It should be on page 770 in the Pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 9, 36. And Jesus took a child and placed him among them. And taking him in his arms, Jesus said to them, Whoever receives one child like this, In my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it's better for him if a heavy millstone is hung around his neck and he is thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than having your two hands to go to hell into unquenchable fire. And if your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life without a foot than having your two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye is causing you to sin, throw it away. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty... With what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Title of the message this morning is Disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Come this morning, Father, with a desire to be better at being disciples of Jesus. Father, we we want to be as much like him as we can possibly be. So, Father, in 
that vein, with that desire, we pray, come Holy Spirit and and take this word and make it living and active in our lives. Take this word and, and convict us where we need convicting and encourage us where we need encouraging and sanctify us where we need sanctifying. And help us where we need helping. Father, we we long today to be transformed. We long today to be ever more like our Savior. So God, do what needs to be done in each one of our hearts this morning. Work this in our lives. Give us ears to hear. And let us not be shallow hearers with a shallow understanding of your word. Make us deep disciples that have deep roots in your word. So that when the hardships do come, and they will. That Lord, though we may hurt and though they may sting. We will stand strong at the end. We ask this, Father, not because of any merit we have. We ask this simply because Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ has saved us. Amen. You may be seated. Now this passage is a continuation of a story that began in verse 30. Now verse 30, it tells us that, that the disciples... It says, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them. Jesus was intentionally keeping his disciples away from everyone else. His goal in this was to spend time alone with his disciples. He is rapidly approaching Jerusalem. He is rapidly approaching the cross. And he knows that the time is short. And he needs to spend as much time with just the twelve as he can to pour into them. So they can be as much like him as they can be by the time he dies. By the time he rises from the dead. Jesus knew there were areas of their lives where they were still very much unlike him. And they needed to be changed. Jesus also knew these changes would be difficult for them to accomplish. So he's giving them time. What Jesus did in them is what Jesus does in us today. He, he gets with us. He works in us. And he seeks to help us become like him. We then, we strive to put into practice what Jesus has shown us. Right? And this I think is a key thing. Right? Because the, the key point is disciples of Jesus strive to be like Jesus. Now the striving is really an important part of it. It would be great if we could have a study and the Holy Spirit would make something just living and active to us from the Word and boom, we're different. We're changed. We're just like we ought to be and we don't have to do really anything. We just sort of sat there and said, yes, Lord, I receive it and... Boom, we're different. But it doesn't really work that way. The world, the flesh, and the devil still pull against everything that the Spirit is trying to do within us. Everything Jesus is trying to do within us. And so the striving is always a part of it. We won't passively go through life and become like Jesus. Passivity leaves us shallow. Passivity leaves us falling away. It's only in the striving that we go deep. It's only in the striving that we are transformed. So disciples of Jesus strive. They don't just listen and hear. They work and they labor to put.
put into practice what Jesus has shown them so they can be as much like Jesus as possible. What I want us to do today is, is look at what this passage, we, we couldn't look at everything it meant to strive to be like Jesus, but in this passage, it teaches us several things about what it means to be like Jesus. The first is, Jesus cares about the least of these. Now, Jesus and his disciples have just walked from Galilee to Capernaum. As they walked, the disciples had gotten into a bit of discussion uh, in the previous verses. What they had discussed was, who was the greatest? Jesus saw this. He knew what they were discussing. He asked them in verse 33 what they were talking about. I love verse 34, but they kept silent. I think they were embarrassed. I think they were ashamed at what they had been discussing. To me, it makes sense that they would be ashamed. I mean, if kindergartners are arguing over who's the best, who's the greatest, I mean, that's sort of cute. Grown men doing it is about as lame and pathetic as anything could possibly be. Especially since Jesus had just been teaching them that he is going to die at the hands of the religious leaders and rise from the dead. And their response to him going to die and him going to rise again is, well, I think I'm better than you. I think, I think I'm the greatest of all of us. So they missed the point. Jesus knew what they'd been arguing about. He called them on it. Verse 35, he sets them down and he tells them, if anyone wants to be first, he has to be last and a servant of all. What Jesus says is, is contrary. To really how the world seems to work. To be the greatest in our world, you have to elevate yourself, put yourself first, look out for you. Jesus says, not so in the kingdom of God. If you want to be great, serve others. Put yourself last, put others first, boom. Instant greatness in the kingdom. But he's not through with that point to try to rebuke them and humble them in their arrogance and their pride. He says in verse 36, it shows in verse 36, he, he took a child and he placed him in the middle of them, kind of in the middle of all of them. And then he took the child in his arms and he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not merely receive me, but him who sent me. Now, this would have been startling in those days. The ancient world had a complicated relationship with children. On the one hand. Children were seen as a blessing from God. On the other hand, children were best seen and not heard. Probably not seen either. No grown adult man would serve a child. Children served adults, not the other way around. But teaching them to receive, to, to serve children, he is teaching them a lesson that really goes beyond children. Because there were classes of people in the ancient world that were considered to be unimportant. And, and they were basically helpless to do anything about it. They had few rights and were typically and quite easily taken advantage of by those with power. And no one cared. The lesson Jesus teaches his disciples is that he cares for those society deems unimportant. He cares for those who are helpless. He cares for those who have no power or influence. He cares for those that society would take 
advantage of. Jesus cares for the least of these. And since Jesus cares about the least of these, we as his disciples should care about the least of these as well. Why should we care about the least of these as Jesus does? Well, several reasons, but two important ones. One is the least of these have always been the backbone of the church. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28, God's word says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those who are strong, and the insignificant things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. The early church was pretty radical. And it spread not among the rich and the powerful and the influential. But it spread primarily through the least of these. Through those who weren't wise, who weren't powerful, who weren't noble. A move like that. Spreading among that least of these group of people seemed foolish to the world. Made it seem like it was an insignificant movement if it was not spreading among the rich and the powerful and the influential. But this was intentional on Jesus' part. Because growing his church through those society deemed unimportant, those society deemed Helpless and without power or influence demonstrated his power and his glory. People joined with the early church because Jesus was there. They, they didn't they didn't rent out a big venue and have famous singers come and headline a concert. And hope that people would be drawn to Christ. That they didn't look for people who were famous in the world's eyes. And, and maybe them to drop Jesus' name at some point, And then latch on and say, aha, he's on our team. You should be on our team like he is. The draw of the early church was not any one person that was physically present in the church. It wasn't the cool pastor. It wasn't the amazing band. It wasn't the snazzy facilities. The draw was one thing and one thing only. And that thing was a person. It was Jesus. And that's why he intentionally reached out through the least of these. To draw them to himself so that the movement would be about him and not about somebody famous that was the draw. Well, I'll go to that church as long as that pastor's there. Or I'll go to that church as long as they have all the programs I like. Or I'll go to that church as long as the band plays all the music I like. No. All of those things could fail. I'm going to be in church because Jesus is there. The least of these have always been the backbone of the church of Jesus Christ. Because he cares about them. We should care about them too. 
Another reason we should care about the least of these is how we serve the least of these is how we serve Jesus. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46. You should read it. About the day that's coming when there will be a separation. He'll separate the the sheep from the goat, the saved from the lost, the righteous from the wicked. And on that day, the righteous sheep are invited to come into the kingdom. And they are told, well done. And the king tells them that they're invited in because they saw him when he was hungry and they fed him. And they saw him when he was thirsty and they gave him something to drink. And they saw him when he was a stranger and they showed him hospitality. And they saw him when he was naked and they clothed him. And they saw him when he was sick and in prison and they went to visit him. Now the the righteous sheep are, are shocked. And they're asked. When did we ever see you in those conditions and do what you're saying? And here's what Jesus says. And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. But the story goes on. And the unrighteous goats are are banished from the kingdom into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, And they are told that the reason they're banished is because when they saw him hungry, they didn't feed him. And when they saw him thirsty, they didn't give him anything to drink. And when they saw him as a stranger, they didn't show him hospitality. And when they saw him naked, they didn't give him anything to wear. And when he was sick and in prison, they didn't visit him. And just as shocked, the unrighteous goats say, Lord, when did we see you in those conditions and not do for you? And he said, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me either. To serve the least of these is to serve Jesus. To ignore the least of these is to ignore Jesus. To the extent we care about the least of these is the extent we care about Jesus. Jesus cares about the least of these. And if we are disciples of Jesus... Who are striving to be like Jesus. We must care for the least of these as well. So Jesus cares for the least of these. But Jesus rejects tribalism. Verse 38. The disciples are feeling the rebuke of of what Jesus has just said. And they try to change the subject and redeem themselves at the same time. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he wasn't one of us. He wasn't following us. In some ways, that's a hilarious thing. It, it's hilarious because just a few verses earlier, in, in verse 18, in verse 28 and 29, the disciples had tried to cast out a demon and they failed. 
And so they saw someone succeeding where they failed and they tried to stop them. And the reason they tried to stop him was because he wasn't one of their group. He wasn't one of the twelve. Now, by all appearances, this isn't doesn't seem to be teaching us that this other guy was a heretic. I think from all appearances, we're supposed to understand that this person was a believer in Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. He just wasn't one of the twelve. Their problem wasn't that he was proclaiming heresy. Their problem wasn't that he was actually demonizing people. Rather than setting them free, their problem, their only problem, he wasn't one of them. He wasn't in their club. He wasn't in their tribe, if you will. Jesus isn't happy about this. Verse 39. But Jesus said to them, do not hinder him, for there is no one who perform a miracle in my name. And be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water because your name is followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Right? Don't hinder him. Why? Because if he's serving in my name, he obviously belongs to me. You won't be able to speak evil of me afterward. Those who aren't against us or for us. And verse 41. If someone who's not a part of our tribe, they serve you in even the smallest of ways because you're a disciple of Jesus, I will reward them. This is a a firm rebuke of the tribalism of the apostles. Jesus absolutely rejects tribalism. And as his disciples, so should we. Why should we reject tribalism as Jesus does? Well, because unity testifies of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And let me be clear. The unity Jesus is talking about in that prayer, the unity that we are seeing in this, the rejection of tribalism here. It's not a unity with heresy. Right. It's not a unity with cults. It's not a unity with non-Christian religions. It's talking about unity among disciples of Jesus. But what we often do is we. We severely limit what he's saying in that prayer in John 17. And we say there ought to be unity in the local church because that testifies of Jesus. Now, to be sure, there ought to be unity in a local church. But that's not all Jesus is meaning. We're we're not the only disciples of Jesus in Gaiman. Right now over there, there are disciples of Jesus worshiping in the Nazarene church. And, and over there, there's disciples of Jesus worshiping at Sunset Lane. And, and up that way at First Baptist, there's disciples of Jesus. And on Main Street, there are disciples of Jesus. And, and on Roosevelt, there are disciples of Jesus. There, there are just churches all over Guyman where other disciples of Jesus are, are gathered together. And what Jesus is talking about is that, that we would have unity, not just among ourselves, our tribe, 
but among all of the kingdom participants, all the disciples of Christ. Now, when we talk about working with other denominations and other churches, often we make, I think, two mistakes. One mistake is to act like there aren't any differences. Right? That Nazarenes and Free Will Baptists and Southern Baptists and Pentecostals and Assemblies of God and Lutherans, we all believe exactly the same thing. Let me be clear. We don't. There's a reason I'm a Free Will Baptist and not a Nazarene. And there's a reason Cason at the Nazarene church is a Nazarene and not a Southern Baptist. And there's a reason David at Sunset Lane is a Southern Baptist and not a Free Will Baptist. There are, there are reasons why we are where we are. So we can't just act like we all believe exactly the same things because we don't. The other mistake is to act like the things where we disagree are ultimate things because they're not. Where I disagree with my Nazarene brethren is on very, very few things. And in the scheme of eternity, very minor things. Where I disagree with my Southern Baptist brethren is on very few things. But it's very minor things. Right? And if the world sees the churches... All working together. Honest about our differences. Yes, we have differences. Yes, we believe different things. But but Jesus is greater. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is more important. The world begins to say, man, there really might be something to that Jesus stuff. But as long as the world sees us going, no, no, we're the only disciples of Jesus in Gaiman. No, no, no. No, no, only free will Baptists will be in heaven. No, no, we're the only ones who, who really love the Lord. And we can't work with them and be together with them and have fellowship with them because they don't believe exactly like we do. Then the world says, well, the church is no different than a political party. Free will Baptist and Nazarene, those are labels like Republican, Libertarian, Democrat. That, that's all it is. It's nothing different. There's nothing large that unites us. And there is Jesus and our commitment to him and our being disciples of him. We must have unity within the different tribes in our community. Because no one tribe can reach them all. No one church can reach Gaiman for Christ. Unity testifies of Jesus. But also, Jesus is being proclaimed. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard to everyone else. And that most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking They are causing me to stress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I will rejoice. But not only that, I will also rejoice. God had sovereignly worked things so that Paul's imprisonment caused the gospel to go out even more. Rather than being afraid of the fact Paul had been arrested and they might be as well, it emboldened the disciples of Jesus and they began to go out and preach the gospel. But notice, not everyone who was preaching the gospel had the right motives. 
Now, they were preaching the right gospel. They were preaching the right Christ. But their motives were selfish. Their motives were impure. They, they desired to cause distress to Paul in prison. And Paul's response is an example for us. He rejoiced because Christ was being proclaimed. So now, I don't know what the churches in town, Cason, David, Michael, John, David at Methodist Church, I don't know what they're preaching today. I don't know the individual portions of their message, passages they're preaching, but, but I know those guys. And here's what I can promise you. They're preaching Jesus today. And so, no, they're not our tribe, as it were. But they're preaching Christ. And so we can rejoice in what happens there. We can rejoice in what's going on there. We reject tribalism because Christ is being proclaimed. Jesus rejected tribalism. And if we as disciples of Jesus are striving to be like Jesus, we must reject it as well. So Jesus cares about the least of these. Jesus rejects tribalism. Thirdly, Jesus cares about souls. Now, verse 42, it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it's better for him if a heavy millstone is hung around his neck and he is thrown into the sea. Now, little one there doesn't seem to be a reference to children. We've switched. It seems to be a contrast in verse 41. Verse 41, people who do good to disciples of Jesus are blessed. And then in verse 42, those who do bad to disciples of Jesus face judgment. Now, sin, as it says in my Bible, some of your translations may say stumble, some may say offend. It's a strong word and it pictures someone falling away. Right, so what it means is if you or I do something and what we do, the action we take, it causes someone to fall away from Christ, then, then we have seriously erred because there's a judgment for that. This is a warning for us to be careful about how we treat other disciples of Jesus. And, and in light of the context, it could even be how we treat other tribes of Jesus. So that in our actions toward them, we don't damage their soul and cause them to abandon their faith in Christ. We would be better off dead than causing someone to fall away from Jesus. It's a warning to care for souls. But that's not the only place we're to care for souls. Look at what he goes on to say. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than having your two hands go into hell into unquenchable fire. And if your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life without a foot than having your two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye is causing you to sin, throw it away. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus 
teaches us that the Christian faith, a saving faith, is a fighting faith. Those who genuinely believe in Jesus to the saving of their soul, they, they fight their sin with a deadly seriousness. And really this fight is a, it's a fight of preference. It's a fight of values. We prefer Jesus and the life he gives us to our sin. And so we fight against it and we put it off. We value Jesus and the life he gives us more than we value our sin. And so we fight our sin and we put it off. But the, the opposite of the fight is the lack of faith. Where there is no fight against sin, there is no saving faith. Where there is no fight against sin, there is no salvation. Those who prefer their sin to Jesus and the life he offers do not legitimately have saving faith in Christ. Those who value their sin more than they value Christ and the life he offers are not saved. That's the point of the passage. Now, this passage, though, isn't condemnation from Jesus. It's it's a warning. It is a warning to examine ourselves. What do I prefer? What do I value? If I prefer Jesus, it will be seen in the way I fight against my sin. If I value Jesus, it will be seen in the way I fight my sin. But if I prefer my sin, it will be seen in the way I choose my sin. If I value my sin, it will be seen in the way... I choose my sin. Jesus, in some ways, is is pleading with us to repent of our sinful preferences and our sinful values and receive life from Him. Jesus pleads this way because He cares about the souls of people. And as disciples of Jesus, we should care too. Because hell is real and people really go there. Hell isn't symbolic. It isn't a story made up to scare kids into being good. It's a real place. There is a day coming where there is a great white throne... And every person will stand before him, rich and poor, important and unimportant. And they will be judged according to their deeds. And if their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, they will be tossed into the lake of fire. And that is the second death. Listen, I know that's a hard teaching. But it is what God's word says. And it goes against our cultural ideas. As a culture, as people in general, we we have if we have a sense of justice at all, 
we believe there probably is a hell. That's what our culture believes, that there is probably is a hell. But the way we believe it as a culture is kind of like this. Really bad people go to hell. Pretty much everybody else goes to heaven. But that's not what God's word teaches. Revelation tells us that if we, if our names are not in the book of life, in other words, if we haven't repented of our sins and believed in Jesus, then, then we go to hell. But, but this passage 43 through 48, it, it, it really gives us a practical examination. Right? Because according to Jesus, if I value my sin and if I choose my sin, I will go to hell. So anybody can say, yes, I've repented. Yes, I believe. But the proof is not in the verbal, but it's in the life. And where there is no striving against sin, there, there is no salvation. There is just a certain judgment. And people who will say, Wait, Lord, I, I thought, I mean, I did, I, I believe, I did. And him saying, depart from me. I never knew you. As disciples of Jesus, we should care about the souls of the people around us. We should not judge. We're not judging. But if we see someone who has no fight against their sin, and they prefer it and they value it more than what Jesus has said, we should recognize what that means. Value their souls more than we value their friendship. Value their souls more than we value our relationship. Value their souls enough to say, no, you're not saved. This is what Jesus himself teaches. God, help us not to... Console our conscience by saying, oh, I'm sure they're good people and they're going to be okay. While we literally watch them go to hell when they die. God, help us to care about their souls. Jesus cares about their souls. And if we are his disciples striving to be like him. We must care about their souls as well. And then finally, Jesus calls on us to decide. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Now that phrase is unique to Mark. Commentators are divided over their meaning, but it seems to have a connection to the Old Testament where salt was to be put on offerings that were to be burnt with fire. And the idea of the passage seems to be everyone We'll experience fire in one way or another. Either we experience the fire of purification, i.e. we fight against our sins and strive to put it off. Or we will experience the fire of hell. And what Jesus is saying here is choose your fire. You're going to be salted with fire. That's that's not in question. Two fires, you're going through one of them. Which one will you choose? Will you choose the fire of purification as you put off your sin? Or will you choose the fire of hell? You, you will choose one. One or the other is what we're going through. All of us. But we get to choose. 
Verse 50, Jesus essentially is pleading with us again to choose him. Right? Salt is good, but if it comes unsalty, what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I won't get into what unsalty salt and how useless what it talks about, but what I want you to see is he lays the choice out. Choose it. But then he's not just saying choose it. He's saying choose this. Have salt in yourself. Choose this. Choose to be useful. Choose to fight against it. Choose me and the life I offer. Jesus calls on us to choose and we must choose. And we must choose because there is no middle ground. There is no third option. There are no special deals with Jesus. Where we get to live in sin. And still call heaven our home. We have to choose Jesus or our sin. And the decision to choose Jesus is more than the decision to come to him and be saved. It starts there to be sure. But it doesn't end there. It is a call to discipleship. A call to daily deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow Jesus. This isn't merely a call to be more disciplined or more self-controlled. It is ultimately a call to depend on Jesus. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. How many things can we do apart from Jesus? None. How much fruit can we bear apart from Jesus? None. How much like Jesus can we become apart from Jesus? None. We, we can't at all. The decision Jesus calls on us to make is not a one-time decision. To go through the motions of repenting and believing and then going about our life. It is a decision to daily choose Jesus. Daily call on Jesus. Daily go to Him in submission and humility, asking Him to make us more like Him. We go to Jesus confessing, I really don't care for the least of these like you do. Change me so I will. Jesus, my heart is bent toward tribalism. Change me so I'll reject tribalism like you do. Jesus, I don't value souls the way you do. Change me. So I value souls like you. Jesus, my heart is bent toward preferring and valuing my sin over you and the life you give. Change me. So I prefer and value you more than my sin. Help me to fight sin to the bloody, bitter End. This is the daily decision we are all called to make. What decision will you make today? Let's stand. Everyone will decide today. Everyone in this room this morning will decide. We will decide for Jesus or we will decide for something else, but we will make a decision. 
What decision are you going to make this morning? I'm going to open the altars up for anyone who wants to come forward. I'll pray, open the altars up. If you need to come forward and decide for Jesus, whether it is that initial repent and believe and be saved, confess that your values have been out of whack, ask for help, you come. You come. Don't worry about what anyone thinks. Don't worry about anything. You worry this morning about Jesus and choosing Him above all else. Heavenly Father, we love You. You're great and glorious. You're wonderful and worthy. Guide us this morning to see the choices we're making. Father, we are easily self-deceived. And don't let us be that way today. Come Holy Spirit and work in our hearts and show us what choices we're making. What our values are, what our preferences are. Areas where we're pushing back against what you have said in the word. And let us choose Jesus this morning. His name we pray. Amen. If the altars are open.